Happy Wednesday, everyone. I'm George Affleck. I'm in here for Jill Bennett, and I hope you're having a good day. We've got a full show for you today. All three hours are jam-packed with good stuff. In uh, our third hour, between two and three, we'll be talking about uh, food inflation. You know, I don't know if you noticed it, but food costs are going up. And you know what? It's not being talked about in this federal election campaign. So we're going to find out why and why it should be. We'll also have your buzz lines. We've got some leftover from yesterday. And we want to always encourage you to call our buzz line at 604-331-2899 throughout the show. 331-2899 to give us your feedback and your your buzz on uh, and leave a message for us in that line. In the second hour between two and three, uh, why isn't the opioid crisis uh, a big issue on in this election campaign either. We haven't heard much about that. Obviously, it's still a huge crisis across our country, and yet nobody seems to be talking about it at the federal level during this election campaign. Also, $10 daycare, not also not being talked about in a lot of ways. It's kind of been brought up, but we have someone who's going to come in and talk about there's a better way to do this. The $10 daycare is full of holes and full of problems, and we need to think differently about how we provide uh, daycare. In this hour after the news, we're going to have an update on the federal election from a global news reporter, as well as Eric will be by, Eric Chapman will be by to uh, talk about movies that, uh, that move you, that make you, that make you tear up and how they impact your life. But first, um, you know, this week, as we all know, the province uh, of BC uh, introduced the BC vaccine card first. That was earlier in the week where we have to show this card and prove that we were vaccinated. Uh, that will be introduced in September to show that you have had one, at least one vaccination and the other one. And then by October 24th, you have to have proof that you've been vaccinated twice. And this will allow you to get into events and uh, eat at restaurants, go to bars, all those kinds of things. Uh, and then yesterday, the province announced that we're going back to masks. We're, you know, it's, we have to wear masks again as of today, indoors at all places across the province. Uh, they also announced that the schools, uh, that schools will in, coming back in the fall, all the kids will have to wear masks from grade four and up. So, you know, it's like one step forward, one step backward. Are we getting anywhere during this, I don't know. A lot of people are upset about the uh, the, the proving of the vaccinations, but you know, public polling is kind of you know pretty much uh, in support of this. But how will this impact employers? I think is a big question we have, and that's what we're going to be discussing this first half hour. To discuss this first is uh, Mackenzie Irwin. She is an employment lawyer at Semfuru and Tumarkin. Hey, uh, how's it going, Mackenzie? Good afternoon, George. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me and finding the time. I know it's busy out there. So give me your thoughts first on the, the, the announcements this week and and, uh, and where you stand on this. Yeah, I mean, um, the vaccine passport um, issue, it really, um, you know, it applies to these public forums. Mm-hmm. Um, the government is clearly taking, um, you know, it's a temporary measure that the government is putting in place to kind of curve the pandemic on mm-hmm. on a temporary basis and uh they while they are really extraordinary measures um it's something that the government feels is justified given the current state uh of the pandemic right right now and and particularly with how aggressive the delta variant is mm-hmm. um so they're taking this aggr- aggressive a- approach to curve it but um i think it's important to note that that it is a temporary measure, and and the current end date, I believe, is, is January thirty first, twenty twenty two. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it's temporary. Sure, okay, like taxes are, are temporary. Sure, uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I think we'll see how you know. We thought the masks were done, and they're back. Um, I guess the question really comes down to. 
And it's funny because they've they mandated vaccinations in senior, you know, long-term care facilities, but they haven't pushed it any further uh, in schools. For example, I had the Minister of Health on yesterday and I asked them, why? Why are you not just mandating teachers to get vaccinated? They haven't pushed it that hard, but uh, we might be heading that way, this mandatory passport, this mandatory, you know, the mandatory mask. It seems like the province is heading towards more mandatory stuff than, than previously. And I'm wondering for what impact that has on employers. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, we're definitely seeing this trend towards um, the government stepping in and, and um, implementing these mandatory vaccine policies mm-hmm. in certain um, industries um, and for, cer- for certain employers. So it's tricky for employers right now because they really need to kind of have their finger on the pulse in terms of what's happening and what the gov- what government orders are coming out. Um, things right now are super fluid and they're changing on an almost yeah. daily and weekly basis. So, um, I, you know, it is, it's a challenge for employers, but they really do need to keep, um, keep up to date and, and uh, be prepared to kind of pivot as things change. Because there's, a two, uh, there's sort of two aspects of this as an employer. There's the people who, you, who work for you and then there's the people who maybe engage with you. Uh, and depending on what your industry is, it can be, get quite complicated. And you see pushback sometimes. I know that uh, my daughter works in retail and she has people who come into the store and she's, you know, five foot two and she's 22, you know, in her 20s. And she's, you know, she gets intimidated sometimes by some of these people who refuse to follow the regulations. And she's, you know, there are rules that they follow and, and they say we're going to call security, but it becomes quite a complicated thing for an employee and the employer. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think um, employers right now, um, I mean, throughout, but um, particularly given the situation that you just described, they do have an, an obligation to protect their employees and provide a safe and healthy work environment for those employees. So, mm-hmm. Um, it is, you know, employers are going to need to start taking steps um, and, tra- and providing proper training for their staff to to assist them in, in enforcing and implementing these policies. From a legal point of view, do employers need to be concerned if they get pushback, not only from uh, people who might be visiting them, but the staff themselves who say, you know, I'm, I don't want to get vaccinated. I'm not into it. You can't fire me. Yeah, I mean, well, so... Until the government has, you know, speaks and, and orders that um, cert- that you know workplaces mm-hmm. outside of the long-term care homes and assisted living facilities um, meet, require vaccinations, employers right now can't you know step above that and right. implement implement that policy on their own. Um, but there are other measures that they can take to protect their workforce that doesn't require a mandatory vaccination. So ensuring that everyone in the workplace is abiding by public health guidelines, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, now back to mandatory masking and um, social distancing um, and providing, you know, opportunities to, to maintain hygiene and all that. So uh, there are other other steps that employers can take to to address that um healthy workplace and safe workplace, but uh, it doesn't, as it stands right now, it doesn't require them to um, implement a mandatory vaccine policy. And they haven't got a legal leg to stand on from an employment point of view. They can't say to their staff, you must get vaccinated because they're waiting for the province to make that to mandate or give them the legal footing to do that. But they can say to people who come in to their stores or whatever, you can't come in here. I don't get get the disconnect there. I mean, on the one hand, you can't force it on your staff, but you can force it on the people who come to your your establishment. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's important to note that things are super fluid right now. So that while the government has spoken on the, the vaccine passport, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, they're kind of behind a bit in terms of mandating it in certain workplaces. So um, it's tough to say what will come down, but we're definitely trending towards um, a, a mandatory vaccine policy coming coming at some point. Are they afraid to because of the legal ramifications, potentially the province doing it? They think the quagmire that it might create for them uh, with multiple, you know, thousands of employers in this province and, you know, to create that kind of regulation or take the lead on that puts them in a, in a, in a iffy kind of legal situation? Certainly. So I think, um, well, first of all, it's important to note that the, the um, mandatory vaccine policy um, uh, sorry, the passport policy is, is a temporary measure. Mm-hmm. So this isn't right. permanent. There's an end date to it. And that, um, that, that, that saves them legally? Ex- is that like a protection? From- well, it's an extreme measure. And it, I think in it, the government feels that it's justified given the current state of the pandemic um, in terms of, so I think, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a forever thing, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, it's something that has been, it's a, an extreme measure or an extraordinary measure that the government feels is justified, uh, giving where we're at right now. And then for, but they are worried though, that they are worried about the legal, they, they, the fact that they made that temporary is a way they're protecting their, themselves from any kind of legal impact. So I would assume if they were to say, we're going to mandate vaccinations, employers must, employees must be vaccinated. I, I can't imagine how, you can't make that temporary. You can't get a temporary vaccine. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, there, there, the, uh, there are likely going to be some court challenges to this. I would be, um, there's going to be a a whole flood of these coming in. Unfortunately, you know, as it stands right now, the courts haven't haven't had an opportunity to address it, but Mm -hmm. I certainly expect that there will be, um, you know, as we implement more of these mandatory vaccine policies um, and vaccine passports, there will be kind of a flood of these kinds of cases. And we'll kind of have to wait and see how, how the, courts and the tribunals um, address it. Is that because it's not necessarily about the vaccines and the, and the disease? It's more about a slippery slope from a legal point of view, about freedom, freedom and our rights? Is that really what that's about more often than not when we see these legal cases? Uh, um, well, I mean, I think a lot of them are based in some sort of employment law issue. Um, but I think um, in terms of what uh, you're kind of trying to get at, like why the government is, is kind of mm-hmm. dragging their feet on this. And, and of course, you know, if a government is going to um, implement some sort of policy, especially one as, ex- uh, you know, extraordinary as mandating um, vaccines. So um, they've already taken it in, and they've made it temporary. So they've kind of minimized the impact. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to make it mandatory in workplaces um, on a more permanent basis, they really do need to, um, you know, flush it out and make sure that they're they're making the right call in terms of uh, the legality of certain uh, of a mandatory vaccine policy. Okay, I appreciate you uh, joining me today, Mackenzie. My pleasure. Thank thank you for having me. George Affleck and for Jill Bennett. Hope you're having a great day. And in this hour, we're going to be talking a bit about uh, in the second half of the hour, ten dollar daycare and whether or not this is even a possibility and what impact it might have on a bunch of people and the cost to us taxpayers. We're also going to go to live to North Van to hear about uh, some issue related to a collapse uh, at a structure there, and we're going to go live to that. But first, uh, in this half, in this, we're going to talk a bit about uh, safe injection sites and the opioid crisis. We are in the middle of a federal election, and one issue that seems to be, you know, it's not getting, uh, it's kind of getting lost, and it's the poison drug supply, opioids, and the overdoses and the deaths that we're experiencing right across Canada. Guy Felicella is a harm reduction and recur- recovery advocate, and he's here to discuss this. Hey, Guy. 
Hey, George, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So, okay, what, what's, what's been said, I guess, first? Anything about uh, the fact that we're in this opioid crisis right now? Uh, I haven't heard much. I mean, I've heard, uh, you know, the Conservative Party talk about, you know, creating uh, addiction treatment beds, which is, which is great for people who struggle with addiction. But, however, you know, out of the 17 people that die in Canada every day, is he assuming that everybody that uses drugs is addicted to them? And, you know, the reality is that uh, the majority of people who use drugs don't struggle with an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're only choice is really the illicit drug supply and that's what's killing people why why do you think this is not resonating in a way that it should because we know here certainly in british columbia this is a major crisis well, I, I you know i i think the, the the parties are um you know lost empathy towards people who use drugs um and that goes like across all of them um i don't feel that uh, they brought this uh, to the attention that it deserves, it should be number one um, on the the list of party platforms to address that toxic drug supply because that's literally what's killing people. Mm-hmm. And more people are dying of this than than COVID. Exactly, and I mean, you know, look at all the energy and effort that was put into, um, you know, fight off the the COVID crisis in our in our country and if you look at the other side of it the urgency and the overdose crisis which in British Columbia has been going on since 2016 but really right across this whole country um there're just the lack of urgency and, and another thing too is that they're not talking about you know alleviating that drug supply at all mm-hmm. they're not talking about giving people options to access um safer regulated drugs other than the illicit drug market. And so people are going to die um, rapidly. Yeah, because we had, uh, and I talked to her, uh, was Jean Swanson, uh, city councillor of Vancouver, and she was out there giving out free drugs as part of a, basically, a, a, you know, a way to a protest or a way to pr- draw attention to this illicit drug supply that is killing people. Um, and yet, uh, I haven't heard from councillor Swanson since then, um, but certainly that got a lot of attention, but didn't get it. Doesn't seem to have resonated with these parties. And you'd think, like for like, the NDP, it's strange because yet, yet today you just heard it on the news. The leader of the of the Conservative Party is talking more about these kinds of things, and he was focusing on mental health care than the Liberals or NDP. It's surprising. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, unfortunately, even the Conservatives Party platform does not does not address any of the illicit drug supply. And obviously, as you can see. Uh, for the last few decades, spending boatloads of money trying to keep drugs out of this country doesn't work because then we spend billions of dollars from the drugs that get into this country um, trying to alleviate the health and the cost of that. Um, the federal government can't keep drugs out of prison. What makes them think they can keep it out of the country? The best thing that they can do is actually regulate that drug supply so people can access it. And you're not giving people a choice. Their only choice is really... Um, to purchase drugs off the street and die because of it. And the majority of people who use these drugs as well, if you look, they come from all backgrounds. Yeah. It's not just people struggling with poverty or um, homelessness. These are people that have jobs, trades, and the majority of people who reach out to me, even from the construction industry, mm-hmm. that would never reach out saying that they have a, an issue. They would call me because you could lose your child, you could lose your job, you could lose your house, you could lose all these things. Our system of care towards how we treat people 
um, needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Well, and maybe that's the issue. It's too complex. It's about housing. It's about health care. It's about mental health care. It's about drugs. It's about drug addiction. It's about, you know, proper drugs, legalization, illegalization, you know, uh, shipping in, in, into our country. It's about our jails. It's about, I mean, it's just like, okay, you know what? Let's just avoid it. That's, that's, the, that's the better choice in an election campaign. Too complex. Yeah, and then they avoid it and, and more people are going to die from it. And, and that's, that's just truly heartbreaking. I mean, you know, I deal and talk with families, friends, uh, or, you know, past friends who've died of a drug overdose. It's just truly heartbreaking, um, the consequences of these deaths. And these deaths are all preventable. And the thing is, is that no party is actually talking about addressing that toxic drug supply. And you, that's what we need to do. You're in touch with a lot of advocacy groups and organizations. Are you guys going to you know, solidify power and get to, get to the people that are making the decisions, get on the agenda? How do you change this story? How do you get them to make this an issue? How do we get this onto the agenda for any one of the political parties? I think you just, you know, I continue to educate public schools, universities, people, you know, talk about the root causes of our bad drug policies, which lie in racism uh, and discrimination towards indigenous people, people of color um, start there. And the majority of people, when they hear that, they're just appalled. That these still these same laws and policies are in our society today. And in a country like Canada, it's egregious that we continue to allow these racist drug policies in our society to continue the way they are uh, and not look at changing it. There's hopefully a chance, at least at the debate, that this whole, I can't imagine how it can't not, it has to come up as a question at the debate. It has to, don't you think? And what would the question be, do you think? What If you could tell, you know, the moderators and the people putting the plans together for the debates, what would be the question that you would ask all three leaders to get them to give you the answer you need. What are you going to do to address the toxic drug supply? Um, And then how are you going to scale it up so that people have access to those regulated drugs? Um, And in a country of Canada, if you look at Switzerland, um, they have heroin programs there. Uh, In the country of Canada, we have about 140 people on heroin across the whole country. And um, to me, that's, unacceptable um this government or whatever government gets in in power um needs to bring back heroin to give to people so that they have access or at least a choice because right now there is relatively no choice it's just fentanyl Mm -hmm. welcome back george afflican for jill bennett today and hope you're having a great day it's wednesday it's the middle of the week it's happening so quick so uh, daycare uh, should be, as you know, I mean, I'm a parent and daycare was always a challenge. It should be available in all communities across Canada. But uh, should Canadian taxpayers be paying billions of dollars a year to subsidize uh, the many parents who could easily afford to pay, you know, the $10 a day daycare concept? This $10 a day daycare thing, is is it even workable? It's come up in the election. Joining me now is economist Rosalind Coonan, who's written about the $10 daycare in theorca.ca. Hello, Rosalind. Hello. Thanks for joining me. So this mythical $10 day daycare, I mean, it seems like it always comes up in election campaigns and it very seldom gets implemented. I think I think Quebec has it maybe? Uh, Quebec has something similar, yes. So what is the deal? Is this even possible and is it even logical? Should we be bothering with this? Well, it's 
It is one of those things that costs an awful lot more than $10 a day Mm -hmm. to give a child proper care or indeed any care. And uh, if you... If parents are paid only that, uh, well, we economists say when the price gets to zero, demand is infinite. When the price gets lower and lower, more and more people want it. And, of course, on the supply side, as the price gets lower and lower, there are going to be fewer and fewer people supplying it. So if you have daycare that's supposedly available at $10 a day, if it costs a great deal more than than $10 a day to actually supply it, there is not going to be a sufficient supply of places. Yeah, because the issue is, I mean, I had kids and I put them in daycare and it was not $10 a day. No, I bet it was an awful lot more than that. Especially in downtown Vancouver. So, you know, so I paid market rate, uh, had to find the money and that's what people do. But, you know, I think there's a lot of people who can't afford uh, market rate, so they need subsidies. So so why $10 a day? That makes sense then. Yeah, well... If if people need subsidies, I'm all in favor of providing assistance and subsidies to people who need it. Mm-hmm. What I am opposed to is saying, well, $10 a day daycare would be nice. Everybody could afford it. We're going to give it to everybody. Mm-hmm. And we can't afford to supply enough daycare spaces to give everybody well-subsidized daycare. If we had a system whereby, you know, people of lower income got a, got a subsidy for their daycare and people of middle or higher income mm-hmm. paid more, I think that would be affordable and doable. But to provide everybody with something means there generally isn't enough to go around. And, and bringing it up as a national issue, what, are we, what kind of money are we talking about here? Is it from an, if we had a national daycare system that mandated $10 daycare, if that was even possible, what's that cost going to cost the taxpayers? Uh, no one is actually sure of the cost, but we are talking billions of dollars. I think the cheapest possible daycare, and everybody says our children deserve, you know, higher quality than the cheapest possible daycare, is going to cost something like $13 billion a year. So when you get into those kinds of numbers, mm-hmm. it's... Uh, it's an awful lot of money. If you want the, uh, the, the better version, perhaps a slightly higher r- ratio of uh, staff to children and mm-hmm. so on, it can go up to $17, 20, uh, $20 billion a year Whoa. going on indefinitely. Is this even, because it's coming up in the federal election, is it even a federal issue? Is this more of a provincial mandate? So like it fits well, in with health one of the things in our good Canadian e- economy with the federal and provincial things. This is really, you know, education, child care is really a provincial issue, but uh, so is Medic- Medicare. But that doesn't mean that the federal government cannot, can, you know, is prevented from subsidizing or providing systems if the provinces agree. So what they have in Quebec is its own unique system. Uh, obviously, if the federal government got involved, they would send money to Quebec, who doesn't currently take it. Mm-hmm. So we would be subsidizing a, a currently system that they've come up with themselves. And I think it looks like the NDP here in BC are trying to get move forward. They've announced it in a few different ways, but we don't certainly not across the board yet. Yeah, yeah, I think some parties are, well, it, this, and this is something we always have to be careful of, mm-hmm. especially at election time. The governments like to bribe us with our own money, like to promise us good things that we need and want, and daycare is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And there really should be affordable child care, just like there should be affordable housing in every community in Canada. But by saying, hey, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it at a price that everybody can afford practically nothing, and then not mentioning who is going to pay for right. it, how it's going to be covered, is 
dishonest, to say the least. <laughs> you think in an election campaign? What do you mean? They're making promises they can't keep? That <laughs> never happens. So what do you think? What should be the solution? I think you touched on it, but what's a good solution as opposed well, to $10 daycare? Well, the solution daycare? would be to have available daycare that is provided in a way that is not, you know, you don't give money to people who don't need it, mm-hmm. and you can have it. I hate to mention the word that we could find a nicer word for it that means tested, that lower income people Mm -hmm. get a greater subsidy, people who need it and justify it can get a greater subsidy, people who can afford to pay more, pay more. Uh, The uh, Conservative Party has talked about a refundable tax credit, which Mm -hmm. would be a much more manageable system, because this would put more money through the tax system into the hands of people who needed it for child care. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't have to be respond. The government wouldn't have to be responsible at providing spaces because parents could afford more. The private sector and the not-for-profit sector would provide more spaces because that's the other issue that hasn't been yeah. looked at. Where are the spaces yeah. going to come from? Yeah, it's true. In Vancouver, I know they've approved a lot of buildings to have daycare in them, but those buildings aren't built yet. So people still rely uh, on private daycares a lot in, in people's basements and, and that stuff because they just can't build enough places, certainly in this region with a population growth of you know, 25,000, 30,000 people a year. You can't keep up. You can't keep up with the yeah. construction of, of the units. And so that's mm-hmm. supply and demand. That's what we talked about. There certainly is demand, uh, but the supply of the actual units. I mean, I think people can – I mean, I remember looking and we were not needing a $10 daycare, but we couldn't find spaces. And then we're like, where are the daycares and how come we can't get into them? And that was the bigger yeah. issue with everybody I know who's, got, who's looking for daycare. And one other little thing that people seem to forget about this particular proposal that is currently being Mm -hmm. put forward by the federal government, it will only be implemented over five years. So no children who are around now (laughs) and no children who are even expected now are likely to benefit from this program. And who knows what else can happen between now and five years from now to, you know. Especially if it's a minority government again. I guess there'll be another election probably, so we'll hear about it again. All right, Rosalind, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back to the last hour of the show. I'm George Affleck, in for Jill Bennett. I hope you're doing great today. Uh, you know, this hour, is, we've got a few things that are happening, but we seem to be have a theme. We've got a, a stuff on moths, and we've got some stuff on starfish. And then we've got the buzz lines, which I guess you could say is related to bees. I don't know. Uh, so we would be taking your, throughout the show, Take uh, feel free to call our buzz line, by the way, 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. We'll play a, <clears throat> excuse me, a selection of those at the end of the show. But uh, first, groceries are getting uh, more expensive. I don't know if you noticed it. I know that apples I've seen kind of going up a little bit in price. Uh, and why, and so, but why isn't food inflation, as it were, uh, a key issue in the federal election? To discuss this, I'm joined by Sylvain Charlebois. He's a senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. And he's written a column about this for the orca.ca. Hey, Sylvain, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good, good. So <clears throat> signs of food inflation, what are they? Show me the, what are the signs? Uh, well, <laughs> it, you, you just need to look, well, you can just, just look, look on anywhere the shelf. Yeah. in the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, everywhere, there's no place in the grocery store that's immune to uh, what's happening. Uh, you see, there are, there are two wild cars this year. Typically, climate change is the one wild card we look mm-hmm. uh, after very closely. Uh, we've been monitoring prices for well over a decade now. But this year, we are dealing with two wild cards, uh, climate change. And you guys know very mm-hmm. well <laughs> about climate change for sure, especially mm-hmm. this year. Yeah, the and, heat, uh, yeah, for sure. 
Oh my God! Yeah, mm-hmm. and that, by the way, that's why your apples are more expensive because uh, uh-huh. in BC, uh, of all the provinces, uh, apples in BC really suffered. Uh, here in the Atlantic, we're actually doing okay. Uh, a lot of rain. Actually, up. You had yeah, a lot of rain this summer. Lots there. of rain. Yeah, yeah. Like BC there. Now we're in the middle of a heat wave, but there, there's been a, there was a lot of moisture. Huh. So uh, production is up, I think, about 15% year to year. But in BC, uh, supplies are down, and that's why prices are up. So there's there's lots of stories like that. And COVID, of course, uh, complicated things logistically. Mm-hmm. It's costing more to move things around anywhere, really. And uh, it's catching up to consumers right now. I mean, you, you sort of have you, – you'll go and look at the store. You'll go, oh, yeah, sure, this seems more expensive. But – you know, you, you're seeing the data. Is it is it to make it an election issue? There has to be really good, solid stats on this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you look at uh, the data coming out of StatsCan, uh, you'll say, "Well, there's there's no inflation. It's 1.7. What's the big deal?" Mm-hmm. But I I have to tell you, when when you look at Nielsen data, when you look at data coming from different outputs, real real time like, yeah, data, card. yeah, real time data. Yeah, yeah, because uh, we we don't know how StatsCan captures data for the food basket, which represents uh-huh. about sixteen percent of the CPI report. We have no idea what brands they look at, uh, under which banner, which store. No idea about the data we have. Uh, the food inflation rate is close to is is anywhere between four to five percent right now. That's I mean we haven't seen yeah. that kind of inflation in a long time. We've had a very luxurious. You know, average two percent, one and a half percent for for as long as I can remember it. But it's seeing it go actually, to f- uh, it it's it looks a lot like twenty fourteen to be honest, which is only seven years ago. We we tend to forget, but twenty fourteen was a really tough year. Uh, we actually reached six percent. What happened then? Uh, the what was problem, the of course? Well, what made that happen? Well, it was uh, there was there were some issues related to uh, wheat production. Okay. Uh, there were some issues with speculation, and the other the other year that I can remember uh, that was really rocky. Obviously, was twenty two thousand and eight when the barrel of oil was at one hundred forty seven U S dollars. Do you remember the, mm-hmm. the the fuel the food to fuel debate? Uh, in 2008, and uh, and the bushel of wheat actually reached nine dollars U.S., which is still a record to this day. So um, markets tend to really impact the cost of food, and we're we're not seeing a super cycle this year as much as say 2014 or 2008, but we're close. I mean, a lot of a lot of commodities are very very expensive right now, like canola. Wheat is very expensive at around seven bucks a bushel. Oil so, has gone up. All of these things yeah. will actually make uh, food processors pay more for the ingredients, and mm-hmm. then eventually prices have to change. So, what's government supposed to do? I mean, obviously, inflation. How do you you know how do you nip that? How do you stop it? How do you, how do you, especially in an election campaign, what can they what can they what can they possibly promise? I'm going to stop inflation. How are you going to do that? Well, with full inflation, there's not a whole lot you can do other than, of course, uh, build safety nets for people with less means. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's certainly one factor that uh, governments can do something about. It's labor. Uh, labor is actually more expensive now. It's actually close to 15% more expensive right. to retain the employees you have uh, this year compared to last year. Mm-hmm. So, because a lot of people are are saying, well, clerks aren't earning enough. Uh, people in the food industry, we relied on them during 
during the pandemic. They deserve more salary. Well, I certainly agree with that, but someone has to pay for that. <laughs> yes. Well, so, we've increased so our minimum wage here. Up, yeah, right? yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, if you put salaries up by 10 or 20 percent, which we've basically done here in B.C. with minimum wage, you know, you see yeah. that's got to be I paid think so. by someone. The one thing that governments should do, should be thinking about is, is to deal with the with the with the uh, very broken labor market we've had for many years, and 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 COVID, I think, just made it even more obvious. Uh, I know a lot of people are blaming uh, Serb and overly generous public uh, funding. I, I you know, this it's probably a factor, but really the big problem is that uh, we're not necessarily training people for the right positions. And, mm-hmm. and of course, wages aren't necessarily interesting either. And if you look at some of the places here in BC, like Whistler, they rely on, you know, Australians and Irish people, and they're not here. And so that's a real big problem yeah, for those exactly. places. So what... Well, of ki- course, uh, when you look at the entire supply chain, farmers yeah. are actually hiring thousands and thousands of, of, of foreign uh, workers. In processing, it's the same thing. Canadians don't want those jobs. And so right now what's going on is that robots are slowly replacing humans. And so, Mm -hmm. again, going back to your question about what can government do, well, you know, look into automation. Mm -hmm. You know, how will that impact, uh, you know, revenues in government? And because this is really something that we're going to have to think about. All of these positions are in rural areas far away from cities. It's always hard to recruit. Totally. And so, I mean, if it's an election issue, it's maybe they're not going to say, they're not going to say, uh, you know, we're going to bring the price of food down. They're going to say, we're going to bring in automation. We're going to put money in automation. But we're not hearing that either. Like, we're no, not we're not. I mean, Mr. O'Toole actually did bring forward a, uh, an interesting idea of, uh, of actually relieving uh, Canadians from paying uh, GST in December. But we don't pay taxes, <laughs> retail taxes. On food. That's right. So that doesn't fix the problem of food inflation. And I'm going to guess that uh, GST is probably going to go up 1% as soon as the election's over to pay for all the debt <laughs> that they've accrued. So that's yeah, going to... That's, absolutely. I mean, you can save money when you go to the restaurant in December, but that's pretty much it. It's 5%. So. But even if you pay, the, even if you... The impact of GST, because of course, there's as you talked about, the salaries and things like that, there's not just the actual price of the food that you're paying. It's how it got there. If it costs more money to get there... The consumer has to pay somehow. It may not be in taxes, but the taxes will be in the back end, and the price on the shelf is impacted by that. So there's, it's a complex. Yeah, it's, uh, absolutely. And keep in mind, I mean, this is a global issue. I mean, a lot of Canadians may think this is just Canada. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. Actually, prices, food prices are going up really high in Europe, U.S. It, it's everywhere. And logistical nightmares are everywhere, too. And, and now... Uh, the industry is trying to build capacity. Ships are being built, but nothing's going to be delivered before 2023. So it's it's where it, this is far from over. Enjoy your canned food, I guess, for the next couple of years potentially. <laughs> <laughs> right. no, it's not that bad. I mean, it, on a on a positive note, I can tell you right now there are a few things that are cheaper than last year. What's that? You want to know which which one? Sure. Pasta. Pasta. Pasta is cheaper. Yeah. Pasta is cheaper than last year overall in Canada, and orange juice is cheaper than last year. Why? Almost three percent. So they, I think uh, crops were good. Crops were good. Lots of competition in that category. Does pasta grow uh, on trees? Because <laughs> it comes from all sorts of things. Pasta. I mean, it's obviously wheat, but it could be rice. It could like be a lot of people are drinking. Yeah, absolutely. And hmm. so, well, the wheat wheat futures won't impact bread until probably 
uh, late fall, uh, early winter. Okay. Uh, so, so take advantage of it. And, uh, yeah, so pasta, orange juice, and... Uh, but not together. And, uh, not together. Yeah. Never have never have pasta well, and orange juice together. <laughs> no thanks. Coffee's more expensive, so if you want to take a break on coffee, just go for for your good old uh, OG. Okay. OJ. <laughs> All right, so uh, thanks very much for filling us in. All right, take care.